Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Scott Luton and Greg White with you here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's live stream. Greg, how you doing today? I'm doing very well, sitting here in what must look like darkness on your end, but it's pretty bright. It looks like you're at the, the White House about to give the Oval Office address <clears throat> or something. That's it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, my fellow Americans. <laughs> We're going to keep on going uh, before we get that that uh, White House talk gets too dangerous. So we got a great show teed up, one of our faves. Yes. (laughs) Uh, We're continuing a very popular series here at Supply Chain Now entitled, Greg, Supply Chain Today and Tomorrow with Mike Griswold with Gartner. And today we're going to be sharing, as always, uh, developments across global supply chain, global business that you got to keep your finger on the pulse of. And we're going to get Mike and Greg. And all of you probably to weigh in with uh, with with what's going on and what you got to know. So, Greg, always a yes, big Scott. and intriguing conversation when Mike Griswold stops by, huh? It is. I can't wait to hear more. That, <laughs> that's as succinct as I've ever heard you, uh, Greg. Uh, I mean, I always like having Mike. We, you know, it's funny because I happen to know because I get previews what the fun question of the day is. And Mike is particularly gifted and skilled and appropriate to ask this question to. Did you do that on purpose? I may have. I may have. Okay. So thank you, Greg, for teeing up uh, and teasing our fun question, which we're going to be posing to to really the whole panel and all of y'all here today. So stay tuned. But Greg, before we bring on our Mm. esteemed guest, Mike Griswold. We want to share resources with folks as always. And while the whole with that said team took Labor Day weekend off, I wanted to share the last with that said newsletter, which was uh, all about what the space program, in particular, the U.S. space program, all the goods, or at least some of the goods it has created for those of us on Earth. Wait, do you mean goods, goods or good goods? Do you mean like products? I, I mean, products, advancements, innovation. Yeah. Uh, we just cr- scratched the surface with uh, what we mentioned in this newsletter, didn't we? A lot of goods, really goods, came out of it. And a lot of good came out of it. I, I'm with you. And, you know, I think uh, one Get the last goods week. on the goods and the good. <laughs> well, that's uh, <laughs> Y'all check out whatever. Uh, take some version of what Greg just shared. Uh, and check out our latest with that said newsletter, because Greg, I think in this era of this new space era we're in, I think a lot of folks are questioning the investment and the, uh, the, um, resources and everything, everything's being spent, but we really want to remind folks what, um, uh, uh, all the space achievements, what it's really meant in very practical terms for the human race. And, and I mean, yeah. And, and in a, in a, certain way, um, honestly, what do we have to say about how somebody else spe- spends their money? Well said. Right? Because now it's not the government using tax dollars, or at least not very much, right? It is an interesting and uh, I think just a exciting time when it comes to what's going on in space. So almost as exciting, Greg, as a conversation mm. we've got teed up with the one and only Mark Griswold here today. Are you ready? Yes. Let's beam him down, Scotty. <laughs> All right. So we'll welcome in with no further ado, Mike Griswold, Vice President Analyst with Gartner. Mike, how are you doing? Hey, Mike. Hey, I do well. I do well. I, I, I love the lead in. Um, I'm going to need to start uh, reading that newsletter because where would we be without Tang? I mean, <laughs> Tang. people will probably have to look that up. Catherine will have no idea what I'm talking about. Velcro, Mike. I mean, think about it. Where would we be without Velcro? which was a space program product, right? So, yeah. yeah start yeah. your day with tank. Oh, yes. yes. I remember it. Mix it extra, extra good. Otherwise, it can be a little bit gritty. Yes. I've never had yes. any. 
I don't know, but I had a million glasses of that as a kid. But in the South, they made suntang, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so was it that? wasn't all gritty, like you know. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I love that grit on the bottom. Yes. By the way, just leave just enough water in there so it's like you can chew it on the way down. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. So Greg and Mike, I am so glad that we're all space enthusiasts. Um, It's an interesting time. We'll see what is to come. But we got a lot to get into here today, folks, a lot to get into today. And I want to start with this is going to be a fun warm up question. So, folks, if you're with us last week, you may recall the T-shirt that Greg was wearing. Well, so today, Mike Griswold, bringing it back, bringing it forward. Today, it's National Read a Book Day. It's Fight Procrastination Day. Maybe we'll save that for tomorrow. Uh, it's National. Oh, but I'm <laughs> nicely done. It's, Very well it's done. Simple things in life, right? It's National Coffee Ice Cream Day, right? But today is also a big birthday Coffee for a retail cream. chain we all know and love. Piggly Wiggly was founded on September 6, 1916, in Memphis, Tennessee. And, folks, some of y'all may not know. Piggly Wiggly was very innovative. They brought a lot of things to the industry, including, at least here in the States, they were the first self-service grocery store, right? So instead of you giving a list to a clerk, the clerk brings back all your stuff. That was not the case at Piggly Wiggly. Shoppers, for the first time, would take a wooden crate and would walk through the store and pick up their items themselves. So with all of that as a background, and we're not doing the Piggly Wiggly story justice, I want to ask, and Mike, we'll start with you. What is the grocery store that you and your family went to most when you were a kid? So I, I grew up in a, in a small town in Western New York. We had one supermarket at the time. It was a star market, not affiliated with the star markets that you know were up in the, in the Northeast. Right. But that was our, our local independently owned and operated grocery store. My, my endearing memories, and again, people will have to Google this, is they gave out S&H green stamps. Mm-hmm. So you would go to the store, you would pay for your groceries. The clerk would go to this giant box that looked like a rotary phone that had three little dials inside. So if you spent $9.99, it was $9.99, and I would spit the little green stamps. Okay. And then you'd put them in a book, you'd collect the books, and then when we had enough books, there was a catalog. For those of you you know, in the younger generation, this was a physical catalog, not something you could look up online. Right. <laughs> And once you collected your SNH green stamps, you could find something in the catalog you'd like. We would get in our station wagon. We would drive to the to the catalog store, slide over our SNH green stamps, and say, "This is what I want." Man, yeah. Okay. Well, Greg, that's gonna be tough to top. Yeah, that's the original affinity program, basically. Yes. Right. Yes. So, Greg, so the Star Market SNH green stamps, getting that that free stuff after you collected. Millions and millions of those green stamps at the catalog store. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Greg? Well, I'm from Kansas. So uh, Dylan's, which was acquired by Kroger and their CEO became the CEO of Kroger, was founded in a very small town, Hudson, Kansas. And that's where we lived. And they were kind of all over the state. So everywhere we moved, my dad was a teacher when I was that age. So whenever we'd move to a new school, it was always Dylan. In fact, I have an aunt who still works in a Dylan store in Emporia, Kansas, in the butcher shop. Is wow. What they call it. I appreciate that. When I was you know, two years in Wichita, I, I shopped at Dylan's all the time. And I just got to add, Greg, Hutchinson, Kansas, a.k.a. Hutch. Is what I heard. Yes. Those people call it Hutch. That's right. <laughs> All yeah. right. We got a few folks. So Mike and Greg, you're bringing back memories. Uh, of course, my mom, Lee Luton's with us. Win Dixie, she says. Oh, yeah. My dad, my granddad, was the manager of the Win Dixie in Winsboro, South Carolina. Great time spent there with dad. And my mom collected those green stamps, as did Gino. Says, now that's a blast from the past. Very much remember S and H. So great to have you, Mom. And I can Gina. still visualize the S and the H because it was a very distinctive uh, S. Yes. It almost looked like yes. an amper's hand. Huh. Exactly. Um, yes, you're right. So, Mike, we're going to have to have you back on a future episode, and we'll dive into uh, yeah. the best catalog items you got and how long they lasted. <laughs> 
all right, so I'm going to, we got a lot to get into here today, a lot to get into today. And I want to start with our first story, Greg and Mike, and that is what's really good news. So we got four stories we're going to be walking through here today and uh, comment on getting Mike and Greg's take and, of course, getting all of y'all's take out there. And a couple of the stories we walked through have companies that are ranking, that ranked in Gartner's Global Supply Chain Top 25 for 2023. So stay tuned for that. But up first, as some have called, and Mike, you might have called this last time you were with Greg and I, I can't remember. As some have called 2023 the year of the workforce. So more news good news via Reuters as U.S. West Coast dock workers have ratified a six-year labor contract. A couple of points here. This new deal comes after 13 months of negotiations. It increases pay and benefits for about 22,000 of its employees, members of the unions at 29 ports across the U.S. West Coast from California to the state of Washington. And one last thing, Mike, before we get you to, 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 to weigh in here, do you all know what this is a picture of? Let me share. This is this is Airwolf, the 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 famous TV uh, helicopter from the eighties, uh, right? And that's over Jan Michael Vincent. Yes, that's right. Over the port of Long Beach. So how cool okay. is that? But anyway, back back to industry. Mike, what's your thoughts on this uh, on the deal here? You know, we we tend to to focus on on kind of some of the macro challenges of supply chain, and we we oftentimes lose sight of kind of where the bottlenecks really are in the supply mm, chain, right? Uh-huh. You can do everything correctly on the demand and supply, right? You can do everything right on your on, on forecasting. But if the stuff actually can't get off a boat, onto a truck, and into a store, then we've, we've kind of lost the battle. Mm. So I think focusing on some of those bottlenecks is really important. Great to hear that that situation has been rectified. I think it also ties into some research we did last year around just frontline workers in general. Mm-hmm. And the emphasis that companies and the more emphasis that companies are placing on on frontline workers and trying to provide the same opportunities around things like flexibility that say more traditional office workers have, I think is really important. You know, we talk a lot about the impact the pandemic had on things like remote working and and all that kind of stuff. I think what our research tells us is there's opportunities for companies to do some of that flexibility that we've done for offices for our frontline workers, whether it's the dock workers, whether it's factory workers, plant workers, things like allowing, you know, um, schedule uh, shift swapping, more flexibility around the shifts, all those types of things. Mm-hmm. So I think what I liked about the story are two things. One, we, we've we've at least appeared to solve a bottleneck, a potential bottleneck, which I think is good. I also think it highlights an opportunity for us to think more about the frontline workers and what are some things we can be doing for them to create things like flexibility. Yeah. Well said, uh, Mike. A lot of their special loved your emphasis around the frontline workers. Because even though technology continues and continues to be leveraged more to get around the labor issues of our time, still those brave and hardworking folks that still are creating value, we've got to we've got to look after them and make sure that um, that we empower them. They can be successful. But uh, Greg, your thoughts on this labor uh, contract that's going to keep the West Coast hopefully uh, humming right along? Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, it, the contract goes a good long while, and it's thirty-two percent pay increase. So there shouldn't be much to complain about over the next, it, was it through 2028, Mike? I think it was. I believe so. Yeah. So, I mean, I think people are getting paid. They got that uh, little bonus kick for working during the pan- pandemic that we talked about. So, um, I mean, it, it should stabilize things in the ports. You never know. Unions have to earn their keep every year. Mm. So there will be much uh, gnashing of teeth, I'm sure, over the years. But yeah, I mean, I think it's important. This is the this is the biggest port that uh, in the states, right? So we have to make sure that this one operates. And obviously, it wasn't operating very well. So they've done some things. They did some things with human capacity, but they've also done some things with technological capacity that have allowed them to kind of get up to snuff. And it's a, it's very important there, mm. right? I know it affects more than Long Beach, of course, but Long Beach is the is obviously the pivot point of mm. the West. The other thing I wonder, Greg, is your observation on, on the, the capacity 
is an important one, particularly on the people side. You know, you, I'm, I'm hoping that as this gets resolved, that it potentially could be a career opportunity for people that maybe weren't necessarily thinking about this. Because at the end of the day, while this contract is in place, we're still going to need enough bodies. To, to Greg, to your point, yeah. right? As the stuff comes in, it's still going to have to get unloaded. And if it's delayed because we don't have enough people to run the equipment or run the technology to get the stuff off the ships, then we haven't necessarily solved the bottleneck that I referred to. So hopefully, right, this now also could serve as maybe an impetus to get more people into the workforce, particularly in this area, because it's it's an incredibly important area for us to make sure we have enough people. Yeah, I think a lot about Mike Rowe, who has for yes. nearly a decade now been encouraging yeah. people to get skilled jobs like this. Yes. And I am starting, I mean, you know, I have two Gen Zers as, as children now, well, they're both adults now. And I'm starting to hear more and more people of that generation saying, yeah, why go to college? Right. Mm -hmm. I can, I can get good pay in skilled roles like this. And this is another evidence of that. Right. I mean, we have to encourage folks to do these jobs that have to be done. And if it takes pay, it does. Yeah. So, you know, people will, People change their minds a lot about hard work when the pay is much better. Right. Or they do it. It's not that different (laughs) generation by generation, honestly. So, well, it wasn't in the Reuters article, but, but as I was reading in other publications about the, this, this done deal now, uh, that the port directors, uh, including the port of LA director shifted their attention to clawing back the business they've lost from other ports. And of course, there's the, the in, in some cases, some of that business will be easily won back, but in other cases, based on infrastructure and how the Southeast and certain um, uh, plants have been building out because of these shifts and these challenges, that's going to be tougher to get back some of that business loss. But we'll keep our finger on the, por- uh, on the pulse. I almost said finger on the port. No, finger on the pulse of, of what's to come here. Um, all right. And Luis, thank you, Luis and Mike. And Greg, I think you may have been an Airwolf fan. Luis nailed it. Yes, Airwolf. I watched every episode of Airwolf back in the day. Could not get enough of that show. Uh, So Luis, looks like you're a fellow fan. All right. So Mike and Greg, shifting over to our next story. Mm -hmm. So uh, the electronics industry, HP is planning to shift significant production of its laptops from China to Thailand, Mexico, and Vietnam. Now, as reported by Thailand Business News, first time here on one of our shows, the move is being made to reduce HP's reliance on China, given, of course, the geopolitical concerns and rising manufacturing costs in the country, amongst other reasons. Also, uh, industry heavyweight Dell, a competitor to HP, already had launched an initiative to not only make 20% of its laptops in Vietnam, in this year, but also to exclude computer chips that were made in China. As many of you know, HP and Dell are both members of the Gartner Global Supply Chain Top 25 for 2023. So, Mike, you know both of those companies uh, more than most, I would argue. Uh, your thoughts on the, these production shifts? Yeah, I, I think it is. It's a theme that we've been seeing for for a while. We've been writing about it from. From the Gartner perspective, uh, really, is this China plus one strategy, where you know China, at least for for the the last couple of years, has been seen as kind of your your primary source of manufacturing, and there's always been this discussion, but you need a plus one. Right. Now, what I'm wondering is some of these countries that you highlighted: Thailand, Vietnam, Mexico. As their infrastructures start to ramp up to be able to handle some of this, I'm wondering if we're going to see more and more of this happening. Now, I don't know that we'll ever get to a point where there is a China zero strategy. I, I just don't think for the foreseeable future, I just don't know that that's you know, realistic given how much has already been invested in that country. But I, I'm seeing more and more uh, companies expanding into these other areas. Now, the concern I have, uh, there's actually, there's a couple. One is, 
as more and more companies, especially in specialized industries like the high tech, as they start to move into these countries, is there enough local expertise to handle the influx of companies, especially in a specialized environment like high tech? You also wonder just from an overall infrastructure, water, power, land, is there enough of those resources to support you know, growth into these areas? Uh, and then certainly when you think about that Asia Pacific region, weather, right? I mean, all it takes is for a, a cyclone to come through Thailand and your, your, your China plus one strategy puts you right back to mm. China. So I applaud all of these companies. I think it's the right thing to do to kind of hedge your bets. But you also, I think, need to keep an eye on who else is hedging their bets in that same area and start to ask yourself, does that now put a different set of risks on us um, around those those locations? Because if you think about, you know, a lot of those countries were uh, probably if I think of Thailand, my my initial guess would be their number one industry is tourism. Mm. Right. So how if I'm Thailand, how do I start to shift from my number one industry was tourism to now something that's probably on the complete opposite end of the spectrum in terms of what the country needs to provide in terms of resources for for this type of manufacturing. If my number one industry is tourism, basically the only resource I have to provide is good weather. <laughs> well, guess what, right? When, when you've got Dell and these other folks coming in, right, that's now not what you need to provide. Right. So. Uh, I think it's a great strategy, support it 100%. I just think, there's, just think there's things, there's definitely first mover advantage right. for these companies, right, to get into Thailand and Vietnam and Mexico first. But think about other industries. The apparel industry is moving to Vietnam for, for apparel manufacturing, as an example. What does that do to resources? So there, there's there's a lot of of kind of other considerations I think people need to have in the back of their mind as they're looking to diversify in general their manufacturing strategy. Yeah, well said, uh, Mike. And you know what? We temporarily at least have lost Greg, and I bet it's because mm-hmm. I love talking any story involving China with Greg White. And I think as he was getting ready to bring it today, we may have yes. overloaded um, his technology connection. So we're going to try to get Greg back, but I would just add, um, two quick thoughts, Mike Griswold. I think one, I think we're seeing, uh, especially as large companies, they're hedging their bets. You know, it's like, uh, Dell, I think it was, they're moving 20% of their laptop business. It's like they're taking several steps to kind of see the ripple effect, uh, and hedging those bets to see what's next, right? Rather than pick, of course, which is next impossible, pick up in mass, you know, rip it out by the roots and move it. And, and I think that would be a continuing um, trend that a lot of companies follow. And secondly, but secondly, I, I tell you, just practitioner, consumer, American, you name it. I'm really, tensions are extremely high right now in that part of the country. It goes without being said. And now we're starting to see other conversations and technology swaps between different countries. Uh, we're still seeing the ripple effect of the U- the um, the U.S. Uh, ensuring uh, that companies don't sell top end technology and chips to China. I just I hope we can navigate through these waters um, peacefully and find a way to negotiate and and not you know not uh, potentially create what would be the largest disruption we've seen in in modern history. So, uh, Greg. Weigh in. We're talking about production shifts and that last story from Thailand Business News. Your thoughts? You know, reading this article was fascinating because they talk about burying the lead. The lead is the very last line of the article where they say, however, after Mm. they say all of this stuff that I'm sure you guys have talked about, the supply chain for notebook computers is deeply rooted in China, making it difficult for companies to completely shift away. So to the to the point you were making around Dell, it's not even feasible to believe that they could shift away. And the truth is, even if they build them somewhere else, they're still getting the chips from China. I mean, China is in control of 90 plus, Mike, did you give the actual number? Okay, it's 90 plus percent of the, I, I, did, I don't know what the number is above 90, but it's way, way up there, of, of the sourcing of all, all semiconductors because... 
all the way from the rare earth minerals, all the way through the production of these, they have the greatest capacity on the planet. Cumulatively, all of the countries in the world mm. cannot provide as much rare earth minerals and, and labor and talent to build semiconductors as China can. So, uh, you know, to your point, I too mm. bleed red, white, and blue. And um, the, I would love to see it happen, but it's not practical right now. It may be someday. And, you know, right now, one of the challenges with mm. semiconductors is the mining of these rare earth minerals um, is incredibly destructive. And fortunately for the world, China doesn't give any, give a damn about the, the environment. So they're willing to, they're willing to peel back the earth's crust all over their country, right? Dig deep holes, whatever it takes. Mm. But if we want to have any chance of keeping up, we're going to have to go to where these rare earth minerals are and essentially destroy the planet in that spot. So, you know, I'm a big believer, and I think it will have to come to this, that synthetics are the answer and need to be more rapidly developed. We know we can get this, a similar function from some meteorite minerals that can be reproduced, apparently, um, and they're people working on those in deep, dark holes in deep, dark basements, right? But we need, we need to get that funding built up lest we simply cha change um, one form of Earth's destruction, fossil fuels, for another form of Earth's destruction, which is the mining of, of all of these minerals. So, um, you know, we need to accelerate that. And that will also give us independence of, yes, Scott, China, yes. right? <laughs> Greg, man, you brought, as, just like I, I mentioned to you, Mike, and as you know, uh, Greg brought it there. I, maybe, who knows? And Mike, I get your response. What, and I love your comment there about synthetics. You know, maybe that, that, that could be, uh, you know, the, the space program might bring a wrinkle back, might bring an innovation back. There we go. And uh, we'll see how we can, we can really get away from the rare earth minerals that's, that's to your point, Greg, so seemingly inseparable uh, from the industry. Mike, your quick comment before we move on. Yeah, I think a couple. You, you are seeing some um, of the high-tech companies start to, to think about chip manufacturing here, right? It, to Greg's point, it, it's a long road. And I do think, you know, fundamentally, we have some really hard questions that we're going to have to answer. The trade-off mm -hmm. between reliance on a particular country, environmental regulations, you know, long-term sustainability issues, right? We need to wrestle with those. And we need to be able to wrestle with those in adult-like conversations, which are lacking, mm -hmm. which are lacking right. Now. So yeah, th that to me is going to be critical to our success. Is is how do we have intelligent, rational, non-emotional discussions around some of the trade-offs that we're going to be faced with? Yes, well said. All stakeholders coming to the table, recognizing reality, taking the emotional out, and really finding a path forward. Mike, I agree with you. These adult-like conversations are in short supply. <laughs> yes. All right. So Greg and Mike, man, great story there. We're going to shift. I want to give a, you know, we were talking about resources earlier. Resources are so important. We've got an upcoming session that we want to just uh, give a quick blurb to September 26th. So folks, as Greg and I have talked about before, if you can do business with Walmart successfully, folks, you got a leg up. So if whether uh -huh. you're doing business with Walmart, you want to do business with Walmart, or if you just want to learn what makes those relationships successful and you can apply it to uh, all of your other business, hey, join us on the 26th September at 12 noon Eastern time for three proven strategies to level up your business with Walmart. And Greg, if you can do it with Walmart, man, that's, that's, uh, that's what's that song? It's like New York, yes. New York. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, yes. right? Thank you, Craig. I was, yeah. My brain wasn't moving fast enough. But New York, New York, uh, especially the, the Frank Sinatra version. All right. So moving right. Only. Only the Frank yes. Sinatra version. Yes. <laughs> there is only one version. <laughs> right. That's right. That's fair right. enough. Fair enough. All right. Keep me honest today, folks. Uh, all right. So we got we did drop a couple links there. You can check out uh, the session we were just talking about. We got Sylvia Judy talking about how the Port of Charleston is happy to assist any company expanding their business here in the States. I love that, Sylvia. Hey, the Port. Hey, Scott, I did take a look at marine traffic, yes. by the way. And Savannah has 10 
ships anchored outside the port. And I think I reported some weeks back that it was down to zero. Yes. Let's take a quick look if you proceed and I will give you an update okay. on, on Charleston. Okay. Well, it's perfect. Marine traffic. You, so, <laughs> yeah. Sylvia can probably, yeah, it's an app yeah. that shows you. Where it, there it is. Uh, this is not a, this is not a paid endorsement. It's not any kind of endorsement. It obviously yeah, we got won't you. even focus. There you go. Wow. Okay. So it will show you like where ships are waiting and, I'm particularly sensitive to it because they ruin my view, you know, my view of the horizon when those ships are just <laughs> over the horizon with all their lights on all night. <laughs> How selfish. Four, <laughs> four ships outside of Charleston. Okay. So, so there's room folks. If you want to go to Charleston, there is Come room. Come on down. So, yeah, so right. the, uh, the, the numbers there, 10 outside of uh, Savannah, four outside of Charleston. Is that right, Greg? 10 and four. Uh, ten out, yeah, ten and four, ten and yeah, four, ten two and four. All right, well, and we're gonna come come back. So we're gonna relaunch. So Mike, I don't know if you remember, if you're with us, uh, back before Greg's big European vacation, uh, uh, or, or I should say, uh, sabbatical, uh, Greg's sabbatical, right? Because it was all research driven, and and um, that's what it was, research driven, <laughs> right. right? Well, we had a knack, uh, Mike, where Greg had this index as he was reporting. Every time we went live with what was going on uh, down at the uh, ports of Georgia, just outside of Savannah. And I can't remember what we called it, Greg, but it was uh, about. Oh, it had a dozen names. It was the, <laughs> it was the global Hilton head port of Savannah, <laughs> national, international, global uh, I- index of, <laughs> of port waiting or something like that. Who knows? Oh man. So you find a Coen brothers movie or something, but good stuff there. But it, it got, it got up there, Mike, you know, when we were talking about, when we were talking about Long Beach, we started talking about Houston sure. and Jackson, Savannah, and and Charleston being uh, alternatives to to the uh, jammed up ports in California, and it started jamming up ports all over the country. Right. And then uh, I think Savannah had a lift or two go down, uh, or maybe scheduled to go down, and that slowed them even a little bit. But they had just recently cleared all that. But I just realized, Mike. Check me on this. I mean, it's September, so Christmas oh, yeah. goods are arriving yes. now, right? Yes. Yeah. Peak. Sorry, we can't call it Christmas anymore. <laughs> yeah. Peak well, on, on this show, we can. Yes, it's Christmas. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we're going to look forward to those index updates, and we'll save the full name to a, a back of the T-shirt coming <laughs> to a store right. near y'all soon. Um, it's going to have to be a double XL with the name. <laughs> it would be. All right, so moving moving right along. Let's see here. Our third store today, our dear friends at Supply Chain Dive, who keep doing great work over there, they're reporting on how Amazon shipping could really shake things up across the wild, wild parcel delivery world. Originally launched in 2020, if you remember, and then paused for a few years, Amazon Shipping has relaunched in recent weeks, and the long-awaited service offers to deliver goods in two to five days for shipments within the contiguous United States. I've always liked the word contiguous. Popular components that might drive growth are straightforward rates, supposedly no pesky add-on fees, and what's promised to be a very fast claims resolution process. So, Greg, let's get your thoughts here while we got you. <laughs> while we got you. <laughs> so it took me a little while to pick up on that. Yeah, while you still got me. Um, we've talked about this with some of the small and regional carriers that offer these services. The, um, you know, the ones that are specialty carriers or last mile or whatever. But the truth is that it's a ver- that is a very, very complex and obfuscated environment where you might not find out what it costs you to ship your goods until after they're delivered. And that's largely due to the way that the two other big carriers, FedEx and UPS, have their contracts set up, which is why freight auditing companies even exist, is because they've made the the fee structure so complex mm. that people can't even figure out if they're being ripped off or not. But what they can figure out is that, you know, they can't know what it's going to cost them some so very often until the goods are already delivered and by then the margin is lost. So Amazon proposes a a solution, potential solution to that. Their fees are much more straightforward. They they go everywhere FedEx and UPS do. I can verify that because I am literally at the end of the world and I I see 
as many Amazon vehicles as I see FedEx and UPS. I'm in my little end of the street. So uh, seriously, if you drove down my street any further, you'd be in the ocean. So uh, I think that seeing that they can get to those fringe areas, obviously, you know, created by the ubiquitousness of their retail trade, they've turned, they have made a, a habit of turning those kind of services into globally available services. They did it with AWS, which is the biggest profit center in the company. They needed big servers to run these big stores and marketplaces online. They intentionally built in excess capacity as they built the hundreds and thousands of, of warehouses and delivery centers and all the other names they have form sort centers and whatnot. They've intentionally built in additional capacity to be able to have a shared uh, scale economy shared model where you can benefit from the fact that they've already got an up and running very efficient practice mm. for unit shipment and they're doing the same thing with these with you know throughout the entire supply chain so I think they're a very venerable force yeah. as if that needs to be said when you're talking about Amazon <laughs> right well um, and you know that for years I've been predicting that 10 years from now <laughs> I just keep predicting it every year and pushing out that 10th year. <laughs> One of these three will not be around. Mm. I mean, it's actually looking better for FedEx. It was looking really bad for FedEx. They looked like they were going to be in big trouble over the last couple of years, but it's actually looking better for them. Um, but maybe we will have three primary carriers like yep. this. All right, Mike, that's quite a salvo from Greg. Your thoughts here on Amazon shipping, Mike? Yeah, I, I guess... When I look at Amazon, you know, the, you, you think about their ability to disrupt markets, right? That that is a core competency of theirs, the ability to to have enough money and time, which a lot of companies don't. Amazon does enough money and time to sort things out that are important to them. Mm. I think mm -hmm. that what what I take away from this article is is they have identified an opportunity to make things simpler, right? The fee structure that you talked about. There is enough demand, particularly from small to medium business, medium sized businesses, Greg, to your point, where every penny matters, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm Walmart or I'm Kroger or I'm these big retailers that still use FedEx and UPS, you know, a lot of this is gonna be rounding errors to them. The fact that they yep. can't sort out the fees is, is like not, on their list of things to worry about, that's not one of them. So I, I believe, Greg, that in 10 years, there will be three, right? Amazon will be a very viable third, even if it's to a, a smaller organizational size, because at the end of the day, they figure out how to make things simpler, easier, and cheaper. That's just what they do. Mm -hmm. And it may take them a little bit longer to get this sorted out, but I agree with you, Greg. Um, and my house is a long way from the ocean, but I see yeah. I see tons of the Amazon trucks, um, tons. And you know they're really good at figuring out you know how to use an existing infrastructure that you mentioned. They're really good at understanding capacity. So so to me, if I was FedEx and UPS. I think it's now time to figure out what do we need to do to keep them at arm's length mm. while you have some time. Because I think if if we could have, you know, Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine, <laughs> I, I think retailers would now recognize Amazon for the threat that it is and make decisions very differently than they made at that time. Mm. Things like online shopping, as an example. So so I'm not surprised by this, and, and I do not, I would not discount uh, Amazon in this particular kind, kind of industry. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So I got to go back. Yeah, mention of the FedEx. It's been a long time since I watched Castaway, right? The Tom Hanks movie, late '90s. I had forgotten just how prominently in like every third shot it feels like that FedEx was in that, including what I completely missed in the first movie, Greg and Mike, first time I watched Castaway, is when Tom Hanks is coming back and he's been rescued and he's on the plane, private plane coming back, and they're, they're saying, okay, it's going to be a simple ceremony. Fred Smith wants to talk to you for a second. And then they even mentioned the exact, you know, Fred Smith in that movie. Right. Um, so That was great product placement no on their part, wasn't it? Well, yeah. yeah. 
It was right until the plane crashed. And well, then maybe not right. so much. <laughs> that, and, right. and, and Tom was going through all the FedEx packages. Yes. So, you know, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, I like y'all's predictions that 10 years from now. Uh, I think that's, uh, I think there's a lot of truth there. And, and, and if both of y'all agree and stand on that prediction, folks, it's going to happen. It's odds on. You can place that bet down in Vegas. Um, all right. Well, there will be three. Yeah. Right. There, there will unquestionably be three. I don't know what three. Right. I mean, the way I see it is any one of these smaller companies that we talk to frequently that are trying to fill this gap and Amazon and maybe Walmart, who also has a similar service to what what uh, Amazon has. I mean, it could be anyone, but I think for the the model to be sustainable, and this is where it becomes very difficult for old companies, it is... I think Walmart and or Walmart, I think UPS and FedEx, they have to rethink their pricing model and figure out how to be profitable in the way that hopefully Amazon is. Yeah. I mean, you know, the truth is Amazon can afford to lose money on this. So we never know which yeah. of these ventures are really profitable mm-hmm. because they don't make money on retail, yeah. right? Amazingly, with all the fees and everything, they don't make money on that. They make money on AWS. There's a possibility to make money on what they're doing here yep. but yeah anyway i think i think there will unquestionably be three whether this is as mike you said a real disruption and it, and i think it is and it whether ups and fedex can adapt to that or not is yet to be seen mm-hmm. i mean I, I think it comes down to you know jeff just sends one less rocket to space right, right. and then he he funds he funds <laughs> some more trucks here on earth yeah right? i mean that's what it comes <laughs> down to there you go. I mean, if you think about it from that standpoint, though, is Amazon still a tech company? If oh, predominantly yeah. what they do is rent servers yep. and and fill trucks. I mean, so you've got to think about whether, and I think they're starting to feel some of that pressure in their stock now, whether they get the big multiples that tech companies get if they are effectively a logistics retail marketplace. We know what the margins are there. That's pretty well established. and and a, you know, uh, I can't remember even what we used to call it, but anyway, a um, cloud services company. Well, sorry, I know you want to transition, Scott, but one last point. I mean, you raise a great observation, Greg, as I think about my old top 25 hat. I mean, we, we continue to put Amazon in that retail category. At some point, we probably have to rethink that. Yeah. Because you're exactly right, right? Where their revenue comes from makes them look a lot more like Microsoft and those types of companies than they do a traditional retailer. So yeah, it's, yeah. they're a fascinating company to keep an eye on. That's a good point. Yeah, no doubt. Not where they started, which was exactly. of course retail and to where they have vastly and quickly and successfully evolved. Great, great discussion here, Greg and Mike. Fascinating. All right. So we're going to speak to in our fourth story here today. We're talking about one of our favorite, longtime favorite companies and rest in peace one Sandra McQuillan. Uh, Sandra, your ears have been burning uh, for years now, really, Greg, based on one of our conversations uh, with her. But so Monolith, Monolith International plans to significantly grow its investment and collaboration with startups in the months ahead. Now, according to Food Dive, the company's Snack Futures Initiative plans to grow its portfolio from five current companies to at least more than 10 by 2030. Monolith says that Snack Futures Venture helps to boost growth evolution, and entrepreneurial thinking across the enterprise. Greg, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts here related to uh, this Snack Snack Futures initiative. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. I, I got to tell you, I'm not as tuned into food products as such, especially not snacks, and the startup environment around that. But I know what they're trying to do, right? They want to expand into other areas. Um, and Mondelez has typically they've acquired their way to where they are, right? They didn't create Oreos. They bought Oreos. What, and by the way, thank you. Cause whatever <laughs> it takes to keep Oreos around. Yes. Um, I just love for you guys to put the middle back in it now, now that we're past the pandemic. Can you put, yeah. Anyway, but I, you know, a lot of companies grow by acquisition and now this thing called corporate venture, which is what Mondelez, what we're talking about here with Mondelez. That is a big, big thing because I think a lot of these companies, 
they feel like it's been done. Whatever it is, it all has been done. And, and they're in a position where it's hard for them to innovate. And rather than be on the outside looking in with some of this innovation that's happening with these small companies, they want to be a par- part of it. And they're willing to invest chunks of money here and there into a hundred or a thousand or whatever companies to have, uh, have the right to have eyes on that company, maybe even have first right of refusal if, you know, if something big happens or if the company goes up for sale or one of their products hits or whatever, and be able to continue to expand their business that way. So I think it's a shift in strategy we've seen in other markets. It's very active right now. I mean, Mondelez is just one prominent example, but I can tell you that in the wine and spirits, in the beverage industry, it's very hot. Mm. And I think in the snack industry, it's similarly so, Mm. right? People see the generational shift happening where people want healthier products. And I mean, as much as I love Oreos, and I think anyone, if they were honest, would love Oreos. My brother, who's a vegan, loves Oreos because while they're basically murder in a bag, they are vegan. So Mm. they're not great for you. They taste great and they are vegan. So, (laughs) um, but, but I think, uh, you know, as people, as people are leading healthier lifestyles, that's going to be something that's going to become a bigger part of the portfolio in the snack world. It already is. And, and Mondelez wants a piece of it, so to speak. Uh, well said, Greg. I like that little last comment there, uh, a piece of it, talking about food. All right, Mike, your thoughts around this this new story here? Uh, deep fried Oreos. Yeah, we don't need to talk anymore about Enough that. Said. Right? You know, Enough said. Most State, State, fair, State fair everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with Greg completely. I, I think one of the interesting, and I'm glad you you led with Greg because of his, his background and, and his entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, I think... When I look across our supply chain top 25, this is not, this is not, as Greg alluded to, this is not new news necessarily, right? I think if you look at top 25 companies, a lot of them are well established. And what they're looking for is how do we instill that entrepreneurial spirit in our organization that maybe has been around 150 years? Mm. And this is one way to do it, is to find these small upstart companies to, and and to, to bring some of that either directly, maybe through acquisition or indirectly through just cross experiences, how do we bring that, that more nimble entrepreneurial spirit into our organization? If I think about a different segment in a different company, looking at this through that same lens is Walmart. I mean, if you were to Google the, the number of technology acquisitions that Walmart has made of small tech companies, this is the food equivalent of that, right? Where Walmart said, hey, here's some great technology. I'm not going to invest my own energy in building this. I'm going to go buy it. And I think when you look across food and beverage companies, there's a similar mindset. You know, J&J, Johnson & Johnson has a whole part of their business, which is looking at entrepreneurial younger companies that they can bring into the portfolio. So I think when I look at some of these these more well-established organizations, which is code for long, you know, long and old uh, corporations, you need to be looking outside of your organization oftentimes for some of these new ideas. They're going to come from these smaller companies, and it's how do you bring that spirit and those insights into your organization? And I think Mondelez is a really good example of that. Um, as is Walmart on the technology side. Mm. Uh, interesting stuff there, Greg and Mike, for the sake of time, for the sake of time. So Greg, you and I uh, met with a chief supply chain officer this morning and had a great conversation. And it, it, he touched on generative AI at the very end and some really powerful things that they were doing in a week's time that took them six months to do previously. Saved a ton, ton of money with impact while they were doing it. Um, along those lines, Mike, you, you, uh, you know, you talk and uh, lead a, a number of different initiatives in the industry. You're often accused as being the, the smartest one in the room. Uh, Mike, Greg, right? We've had a lot of fun with those conversations. But Mike, you got your finger on the pulse and talk with a lot of business leaders from time to time. Over the last month or so, what's been one of the eureka moments you've had in connecting with industry? Yeah, and I think, I don't know whether it was probably knowing you, Scott, it was planned, but but it is 
the generative AI topic. We're taking that very seriously here at Gartner mm. in terms of how we think about it as a topic to talk to our clients about. We're thinking about it very seriously around how do we use it as a research company. But I think what I'm hearing from companies uh, across Gartner is is a recognition that that this is now here, right? It's not a a fad. It's not a flavor of the month. It, it is here to stay. How do we use it? What are the use cases? How do we use it to create value for our organization? A lot of those, frankly, are still questions. You know, even from us on the Gartner side, still trying to sort out answers. But I think the, the eureka moment for me, which is how you tease this, is organizations need to be thinking about it. They need to understand ChatGPT and the other kind of you know mm -hmm. similar types of capabilities that are out there and start to think about how is this going to change the way we work. And the way we work is, in, is unfortunately very broad. Right. It can be everything from how do we design widgets to how do we answer customer calls, right? That's a pretty wide spectrum where I think ChatGPT and generative AI are all going to play at some point. Mm. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Greg, uh, for the sake of time, your quick a response to what Greg's just, uh, Mike's just talking about there. I mean, the specific incident we were talking about replaced approximately 100 consultants <laughs> for six months. So that's the power that exists there mm. and accomplished it in a fraction of the cost in a fraction of the time a week. So that's the power that we're talking about here. And that was a real, this was not the party trick that is mm. chat GPT, right. right? This was real generative AI, the way that he, he who probably can't be named, right. but we'll love, <laughs> said it, it was an incredibly complex project and they just made it happen. They were decomposing the products, all of the products in every, in every single store to identify the core components and raw materials they're in, and then have a conversation with their suppliers about the difficulty in acquiring these or the eth ethics of acquiring these or the cost and how to deal with inflation and deflation around some of these um, commodities. So genius stuff yep. right um so it's real and it's here it's yeah, here it's here now yep well said greg enjoyed that uh mike thanks for sharing and and that wasn't planned believe it or not wasn't planned i just think that's it is so front and center with so yeah. many supply chain leaders that we're talking to behind closed doors in front of closed doors you name it um all right yep. final two questions for you mike and i'm gonna pop up the top 25 again here um what's coming up next with gartner uh, and then number two, how can folks connect with you? So uh, we'll do the we'll do them in reverse order. LinkedIn uh, email mike.griswoldgartner.com, uh, easiest way to, to get a hold of me. Um, and again, similar to last month, I'm going to continue to 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 bang the drum for our upcoming planning summits. Uh, London in October, Phoenix in November. If you have any um, touch points with the world of planning, those are two events um, that you'll want to keep an eye on. London in October, Phoenix in November. November. Okay, so back to back. Okay, yes. outstanding. And folks, you can learn more about those events at the uh, the Gartner uh, website or reach out to Mike, who has continued to Please. be going three three years now. Greg, Mike has continued to get more competitive and utilize the LinkedIn <laughs> application more. Is yes. that right? <laughs> yes. Uh, I still have a long way to go, but yes, uh, I, I'm, I'm slowly working my way up the, the uh, LinkedIn food chain. Way. We appreciate it. We always appreciate your uh, monthly visits with us and these conversations and, and these truckload of brilliant insights. So want to thank Mike Griswold, Vice President Analyst with Gartner, and we'll see you next month, Mike. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Take Mike. care. All righty. Take care. All right, Greg. Actually, from a timing standpoint, it was we were right on time, and we covered a lot of serious ground and added an extra news story here today with uh, with Mike and with you. But man, y'all brought it today. So, Greg, I want to say hello first off uh, to memory. Memory, appreciate that. Great, always great to have you with us. Yeah, my gosh, it's late her time, isn't it? Yeah. Good night, good morning, wherever you are. She says, "Memory, keep on doing big things out in industry." Uh, Greg, it is fascinating. 
to me as I'm, I'm still unpacking all the different ways that generative AI can be used. Uh, you are much more, much more, you're a technological guru compared to uh, my, uh, you know, hey, I, I, last, I lasted in computer science for a semester, Greg, and only barely by the skin of my teeth. So it, whether you touched on something there that we need to keep front and center or something else that you and Mike uh, shared throughout the course of the hour, what's your final thought here today? Well, I think even what we were talking about there is just the tip of the iceberg for generative AI, because I think people have limited generative eye to thinking about reading content. Okay, so if you use the whole name, it's generative adversarial networks. And what that means is you're an AI bot and I'm an AI bot and I say, hey, the world looks like this. And I run that up against you and you go, no, it doesn't look like that. It looks like this. And I go, no, it doesn't look like. And these two things, it's basically an argue phone. <laughs> these, two, these two methodologies come to what can be proven based on data, right? Yeah. Or in this case, in the case of chat GPT, the available content out there in the internet. Yeah. So this is a learning AI tool. It continues to learn and it continues to rationalize by basically arguing with itself until it has eliminated all the fallacies in its argument. If only we could get politicians to do that. Um, Rather than just mention the names. But right? that's why it learns and operates so fast. It also can process all of that data. It can collect and process all that data virtually instantaneously and then rationalize it. So, yeah. It is coming, and it will get more powerful, and it's going to be incredibly helpful mm. uh, to us, right? Like any AI, we have to be concerned about, um, you know, about whether it could go off the rails. But I think there are a lot more madmen in terms of human beings out there that we somehow seem to keep on the rails. Mm. And then if we can't, the Navy SEALs take care of it. <laughs> Thanks, boys. So maybe we need a, a Navy SEALs for AI. Yes. AI Navy SEALs. So if anyone goes off the rails, they like sneak into their <laughs> ecosystem and zap them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's a, a good case for the fact that we are just scratching the surface. Yes. Chat GPT is a party trick. Well, right. And what it's meant to do is to give you, give, give a simple solution to people that allows just us common folk to conceptualize what it does and how it works. Remember when everyone, nobody knew what the definition of cloud was. Now everybody knows what that means. Right. It was very much a similar message and a similar kind of um, media education uh, exercise. So there's, there's a lot more power where that came from. Yep. Two quick thoughts. I look forward to the creator movie. Uh, which I thought the trailer has been looking uh, really uh, interesting. Only in movie theaters, so we'll be have to um, get the whole family out for that. And then, secondly, uh, Greg, some to some of what you were touching on, I'm hoping that that as Gen AI continues to get more powerful, more practical, more widespread, uh, more organizations embracing it, like the Chief Supply Chain Officer we we touched on earlier, I'm hoping it's going to be easier to use and embrace and bring into an operation or an organization to achieve real outcomes, right? You, you, quick thought there, Greg, like, like for the, for the masses, like Greg, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's, there's always an application for these things. I mean, I think everything is about the masses adopting it. I mean, we had to convince people who will never even know they're using the cloud what the cloud was and that it was useful, right? I mean, we have to do the same thing. And it's mostly about creating comfort mm. for the average person to be accepting of this new technology and not fearful of mm. it. Mm. So, I mean, I, I think that's that's probably the biggest thing. But the power, uh, I'm sorry, I just can't get off the power of it. Mm. Yeah, anyway. that's good. Good, good, good. All right, folks. Uh, Fair, you've got a question. Yes, the recording. That's a great question. It's absolutely shareable. It's shareable now. It's shareable later. It's a, a shareable today. It'll be shareable tomorrow. It, it's going right to right across us. It's going to be on YouTube. That's right. So find and yeah. share. And Fair, great to have you here with us today as well. Okay. 
we got to leave it there. Uh, big thanks to Catherine behind the scenes here today. Thanks for helping to make production happen. Big thanks to Mike Griswold, the one and only from Gartner for the conversation. Greg, I really enjoyed your commentary and expertise you shared today. Safe travels as football season for the NFL kicks off in earnest soon, right? Kicks off in Kansas City tomorrow, yes, at uh, 8.30 Eastern. Yeah. And the Kansas City Chiefs play the Detroit Lions. <laughs> I wish I, I almost had the CBS theme song, but I couldn't quite get it out. But And to our friends at CNS, hey, get those oysters grilled and ready because we are headed your yep. way this afternoon. We'll be right there. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you there. <laughs> I do too. Hey, thanks for being a part with us. And I know we couldn't hit everybody's comment and question here in the, in the chat today, but thanks for being here. Uh, let us know what you think. You know, chime in. Let us know what you think of our programming. We're always looking for new ideas, angles, you name it, as we continue to cover global supply chain like no other. Hey, on behalf of our entire team here at Supply Chain Now, Scott Luton, challenging you to do good, to give forward, and to be the change. And with that said, we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at SupplyChainNow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.